humanitarian. As you may be aware, I work with ACAPS and have done so for the past 11 years since the organization was founded. However, from 1st of February this year, I have put a second cap on my hat. I am now also the acting director of the H2H network, the Humanitarian to Humanitarian network, and that is what today's conversation on Humanitarian is about. H2H was an idea that originated in 2015, just before the World Humanitarian Summit, and essentially it was an attempt to get together a broad and diverse range of organizations in a network, united by one thing, namely the position we hold vis-a-vis the mainstream humanitarian system. H2H organizations don't deliver services directly to affected communities, but rather to the system as such, creating an enabling environment for coordination and response. We are a swarm of change agents, if you want. And what I talked to Fergus about in this conversation is the thinking that went into the business case, what we've learned over the past couple of years, and what we would do different. I hope you enjoy the conversation and uh, Fergus's uh, limitless creativity, energy, and positivity, which always lifts me up a couple of inches. Fergus Thomas, welcome to Trumanitarian. Thanks, Lars. You are civil servant in the Foreign Commonwealth Development Office in the UK, FCDO, the agency formerly known as DFID. You are a humanitarian advisor, and as such, you're actually the first donor we have on Trumanitarian, so I'd like to, to thank you for having the courage to come in here and, and have this conversation, and I'd like to thank your superiors for letting you uh, come in, and I'd like to pledge, and I'm sure you will join me in this pledge, we will be on best behavior throughout and have a really constructive conversation. Sounds perfect. So, Fergus, I'd like to take us back to the fall of 2016, uh, where we met during the big exercise triplex that took place in Norway. This was a couple of months after the the World Humanitarian Summit in Turkey. And I still remember you coming up and, and approaching me dressed in, I never figured out whether it was half a hazmat suit or some kind of fishing waders, or it was some kind of robbery outfit and you were half naked. And I thought, who is this peculiar person? But after introductions, uh, we sat down in a, in a barn in Norway and we had a, a conversation about service delivery in the humanitarian sector, about this new network, H2H, Humanitarian to Humanitarian, which essentially is B2B for the humanitarian sector. So humanitarian actors who are an integral part of the humanitarian sector, but who do not deliver direct services to crisis-affected populations, but rather create an enabling environment for coordination and response through service delivery. And this was an idea that I had fumbled around with for a while when we met back in 2016. And when we met during that triplet exercise, what surprised me was that you had such similar thinking. Where did that come from? So actually, first I met um, your colleague Jude, um, who was another Brit who was at ACAPS at the time. And um, we were talking about these ideas that we were having about um, how do we how do we make the humanitarian environment, the ecosystem more diverse? How do we support uh, small players that do really cool things? Um, and um, what kind of uh, what kind of players would those be? And what kind of activities would they do? Um, and we just we we knew there was a lot of really cool um, cool stuff going on um, that was really under the radar, and that most uh, big donors like Diffid um, wouldn't really be able to fund properly. 
Um, and, and Jude dragged us off to, to, to sit us down in front of you last, um, me and my colleague. Um, and uh, we talked about this idea that we had about a project that would bring together the really smartest, cleverest uh, enablers in the system that brought quality that none of the big NGOs or, or UN agencies could bring um, and, uh, and created just a really, really superior quality of humanitarian response. And it was almost as if um, you, uh, you were kind of preordained to have this meeting with us because you turned around and basically said, I think what you're describing is essentially humanitarian to humanitarian. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, and I think I think it was I think that idea popping up in different places shows you that in a sense it was an idea whose time had come. And I think the reason it had come was that we, you know, the way I think of the improving this the humanitarian system, we, we have these big reform attempt attempts. Right? And, and we had just come out of the World Humanitarian Summit. We had signed off on the grand bargain. There's a lot of excitement about the 10 commitments and, and hoping to make progress on that. But it's interesting when you look back throughout the, the, the past 20 years of, of or even further probably humanitarian um, history, you, you've seen on one side these big attempts to reform the system, but you also see little patches, right? So sphere standards coming up after after some really dysfunctional operations, you see uh, that being followed up by the, the core humanitarian standard. You see mapping uh, specialists popping up, map action, IMAP, REACH, uh, ACAPs, obviously. You know, there's a whole bunch of these small patches. And I think, <clears throat> I think going into the third big reform, sort of serial reformism, also meant that there was an, I think there was a realization of um, the things you can't do through these big reforms, that, that it's good for some things and it's not so good for other things, and that there was a need for a counterpoint. And I think that's why you were looking for something. And I think that's why uh, Jude and I came up with the whole H2H uh, concept. And it was lucky that we met during that, that exercise and somehow exchanged ideas. Yeah, and I, I think... Um, you know, uh, we we were both quite you know jaded. We you know we've lived through um, our collective memory of of humanitarian reform, the transformative agenda, the grand bargain, and um, I just um, I just laughed so much when um, when you said what will the next one be called, um, and uh, and you came up with this idea of calling the next grand bargain the Great Leap Sideways. And I think that was just so perfect and highlighting that, yeah, we can achieve some interesting things and interesting reforms and system change is important and we shouldn't stop that. But by incentivizing the diversity of the humanitarian system and the creativity, and I think we'll talk a little bit more about creativity and innovation a bit later on, but um, this is one of the biggest bringers of change and that whole notion that by disruption that you can, um, that you can actually make quality better and actually serve um, affected communities better um, was just something that we've that we've sort of taken hold of and and so maybe yeah the next bit of the story um, in the narrative is that we we took these ideas away from um, triplex um, and had this very long uh, gestation period of thinking and consulting and designed a project and about a year later 
we were back in touch again. And so what came out of our conversation in 16 was was a business case that you worked on. on uh, I didn't hear from you for almost a whole year, but then suddenly came quite a uh, a, a finished uh, product of, of what later became the humanitarian global services business case, Hux, as we sometimes call it. What What's in Hux? So Hux is like an attempt to um, bring together um, the actors that we really... Um, that we really think um, in Diffident, and we base this on a lot of evidence um, that are really improving that enabling environment, bringing a set of services that really um, help uh, help us to get to vulnerable people better and serve them better. So um, it's essentially um, funding for four very, um, very strong partners that we really respect. And then this pilot funding um, and quite a large amount, 3 million, um, to try and launch this H2H initiative as well, which in its in its turn then should enable up to 60 different small organizations to respond in a crisis. So so maybe we should just name those four organizations. It's ACAPS, it's INSO, it's GISF, and it's the INFORM group. Yeah. And then you have H2H as the fifth uh, partner in that business case. Right, right. So they're all working in quite separate areas, but all of them, I think, delivering an enormous amount of complementarity. Um, and obviously, Inform community is, you know, we are we are providing support to to the development of the risk indices. Um, but that you know that that project is about a community of people who get together and think about risk. And that community is one of I think the most powerful um, examples of of a kind of a joint needs assessment initiative that we've got so far. If you think about the partners to your your business case, those five, what, what's the relationship to the grant Barton? How, how do you see that? Well, we when we sort of thought about the theory of change of the project, the you know the impact level architecture of the of the of the program, um, we used um, we used the grant bargain commitments and specifically the 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 three commitments that the UK were really keen on um, in twenty seventeen which were um, joint needs assessments, uh, uh, community engagement or AAP and community engagement um, and cash as a delivery mechanism. And um, so we we feel that, that, that most of these partners are contributing uh, to those reform agendas. So um, the, the sort of the reform policy, which we developed in the UK um, coming out of the grand bargain, um, is the kind of the hook then for the the rationale for us doing this program and the justification of how it fits with our humanitarian strategy if that makes sense it totally makes sense and i think if you if you think about some of the h2h partners within um aap or, or community engagement uh, internews uh, bbc media action translators without borders uh, ground truth solutions who am i forgetting my CDAC are there as well. Um, so that's that's another CDAC network within the network. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, all of these are members of H2H. And, and I believe most of them have, if not all of them, have received funding from H2H over, over the course of this. So I think you think of the work of those organizations in relation to that agenda and how important they've been in terms of energizing it. And I think you, you begin to see the, the concrete importance of, of the network. Can I ask you what... What hasn't worked as you thought it would? So I've been really, um, really fascinated and, and 
really wrote the strategy around a notion that collaboration is better than competition. And um, I think this is this was this was really blown out of the water very quickly when I realized that collaboration is one of those archetypal halcyon realities that would probably never really properly exist in the world <laughs> um, because of the nature of the ecosystem, because of competition. Um, you can never just expect organizations to collaborate. Um, and um, I think what you need to see is collaboration within the context of competition, that there are so, so few resources out there that it's you can never undo the competitive nature. And the way that that kind of competitiveness is basically hardwired into the DNA of, of all NGOs and agencies, that's irreversible. What you've got to get to is where collaboration is mutually beneficial. And I think that a lot of learning about the nature of what collaboration is. For me, collaboration it's what makes you more competitive. So I collaborate with others in order to be able to beat my competitors. So I want to strike strategic uh, collaborative partnerships with, with mapping agencies, with primary data collectors. That means that ACAPS becomes the best provider of analysis on humanitarian crisis so that we beat our competitors. Right? I, I, for me, there's no... There's no uh, disconnect there. And I think one of the things that fascinates me about coordination and, and the way we think of coordination as, as a community is that it's, it's like it's a good thing to do no matter what. Right? It, it's like we, we detach it from the value that is in coordination. But I think the way to look at it is that if, you, if it costs you $20 million to coordinate an operation, you can duplicate for $19 million and still be better off without coordination. So in a sense, what you're looking for is the optimal level of duplication, not coordination. And for me, that, that, that's where we get it wrong with coordination. That's why sometimes these meetings are there detached from the value they produce for an operation and, and become almost theater sometimes. For me, collaboration is not something we do because we are nice or, or play nice. For me, an ecosystem, it's, it's not, uh, you know, let's not it's not a bambification of the world. Right? An ecosystem is a brutal place. You have, uh, you have symbiotic relationship, obviously, but you also have parasitic relationships. Species are outcompeted and die. This, it's, it's a brutal place in many ways. But I think it also helps it evolve. And so the, for me, there's no collaboration is what makes us better competitors and ensures that the, the most effective agencies survive. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I hope it's not I hope it's not too Darwinian for you. Absolutely. It's evolutionary. And what happens in evolution is that, you know, the dinosaurs um, get extinct and it's often the, the the mosquitoes and the cockroaches and the rats that um that that survive. And I think that was maybe my mistake at the beginning of this project when we all first met as partners, was that I called you guys a bunch of cockroaches and mosquitoes. And there was this silence for five minutes when these very polite people were <laughs> basically looking at me saying, You're the donor, you just called us vectors. <laughs> How should we react?
<laughs> yeah. But but yeah, you know, H two H will H two H will survive if it functions and provides a role in the system, right? ACAPS will survive if it if it continues to enable um, good secondary data quality assurance, right? All of these the things that succeed succeed because they are enabling a better response, and they won't survive. Donors won't fund them if they're not functioning in that way. So I do have a very kind of yeah evolutionary view to that. I think the problem is in in our ecosystem is that you have monopolistic large agencies that should be doing some of these functions that aren't, but aren't giving the space to small um, one trick ponies like sorry to call you that ACAPS. Um, and 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 therefore you need to have some influences influences in this ecosystem like this funding in this project to enable these small actors to bring their contribution we absolutely are one trick ponies and proudly so and i think the the key in that is to know what you are not right so we know that we are not a big mandated un agencies that's actually what we bring to the table we bring that informality and agility that you can develop when you are a handful of people who do nothing but analyze and write reports and who don't, if we put out something that's wrong, if we put some, something out that upsets the government, it's a very different ball game from if a major agency with a massive footprint in that country does it. And so we have degrees of freedom, we have a much easier life and a much more limited set of tricks we can perform, but that's exactly our value. And the beauty then comes in the, in the interaction between diverse actors. That's where I think change and evolution comes from. And so I agree with you. I think, I think we have a very flat understanding of humanitarian architecture. And if you look at a di diagram coming out of the uh, ISC of the cluster system and so on, you won't find a single uh, H2H agency anywhere. We don't exist. If you look at the signatories to the grand bargain, we are not there, right? So we're not, we're not recognized or thought of as an integral part of the system, as the fourth leg, if you want, of the ISC or something like that. And there's, there's not a strategic approach to growing a healthy ecosystem that deliver the services that the system needs. I think, I think that's really where a big part of the challenge lies. I mean, and this is because um, it's in the interest of large agencies to maintain their um, drip feed of money from donors without shaking the apple cart, and they uh, and they don't want to examine the areas in which they are not fit for purpose anymore. But of course they don't. Why would they? And you know what? If I was a D1 in one of those agencies, or a D2, or whatever, or P3, or whatever, I, I wouldn't probably either. Right? Why would I? That's not my incentives. That's not why I'm there. That's not my job. My job description is to maximize funding for this agency and ensure that we dominate as big a part of the policy agenda as we can so that we strengthen our agency because we are on a very important mission and we want to do that as well as we can. That's very natural. We can't blame agencies for doing that. And so it's really an architecture discussion. It's really about, <coughs> it's really about strategically fostering a more diverse system where power is let, less concentrated in a few places. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, 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 and so I think, you know, we've been doing this for three years now with this model, and we think it has a lot of potential. We think it has a lot of risks as well. Um, but, um, you know, on a one level, we, 
we're able to speak to donors and say we've got this you know we've got this common services this hugs hugs idea um that means that we can provide this vital inject into the system that makes it more diverse and 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 takes away some of that power imbalance or challenges that power at least i don't know if we actually can take any of the power away only funding really does that but it's still i still think it's a very important challenge um maybe maybe we were thinking a little bit about about the uh, the collaboration we're thinking a little bit about as well the agility i mean it's obviously it's clear that this project has been interesting because it's enabled small agile actors to 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 move quickly but my concern with it is that it hasn't really increased the amount of creativity and innovation and i think i think we are still even in spite of covid19 and, and not being able to travel anymore we're still quite an agile industry but i i'm a bit disappointed in this three years if i'm honest about how little space there's been to create and how little space there's been to innovate and and that's something that i i think is really central to the idea of of the h2h idea um of the h2h network why do you think that is for me um i i think i think we've tried to force it into some well i think it's been in an incubator so from our side we've really focused lots of resourcing meal money um staffing as much you know advocacy about the idea and maybe we've just forced this to grow in a very kind of hydroponic way um and uh, and this this stuff needs to happen a little bit more slowly and more organically um also maybe our focus is, as as differed has been on a tool for response so it's done that it's been amazing we've had um h2h responded 45 times in the last couple of years they took on extra money and did amazing work on on fake news and myth busting around covid-19 um in terms of projects delivered it's been fantastic um but that you know that idea of the network fostering growth um increasing learning um incubating creativity reaching out to the private sector reaching out to the 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 global south um i think yeah i think we've been very ambitious and we've and and it's it has certainly pr produced a lot but uh it still has much more that it can do but that will take time yeah i think time is the essence right i i think uh listening to you i think it's unrealistic to expect a a network to to be fully formed after a couple of years right i mean you have 60 members of the network now that's in itself is fantastic it's still here that's fantastic you got money out to to a wider range of agencies than you would normally have have supported that's fantastic now did you get everything you wanted no is it fully fledged no it takes a decade it takes maybe 20 years to really grow something strong and healthy that can can produce all of the things you you talk about i think that's you know i've i've been at acaps for 11 years now which is still blows my mind and 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 i think one of the things i'm learning now in these last couple of years is just how long certain things take and how the the institutional bandwidth or the ability to absorb new things there's just a limit to how much you can do that right it 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 does take time and it's non-linear and really non-linear it's it's very hard to to handle 
processes like that in in a lock frame and 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 in a business case and so i think i think the big success is that you did it i think the big success is that it didn't just totally go sideways it it it, it delivered and it's still growing and i don't think you can expect more yeah i don't think i did it i think we did it and there's a, a huge number of people that have worked incredibly hard on it i think it was an achievement um of patience and tenacity um and uh, you know pushing any kind of system change project within um an institution is is going to be very slow and it took a lot of a lot of hard work to influence and to explain and to um persuade um our our seniors in in diffid um about the project um and i feel very grateful that we were given the space to to try and um try something very different and try and really kind of break down the silos between um the policy thinking and the reform thinking and the and the operational response capacity so yeah really really pleased with it but it was a massive a massive effort and i think the real innovation here Fergus, is that you you didn't invest in a one trick pony to fix a specific problem to to provide a patch to something that you were not happy with in the humanitarian system you invested in creating an environment from where solutions can emerge and that's a really strategic way of thinking about system development and and i i don't see that happening very often so so for me that's the big that's the big win here and that's the big innovation actually so the current age swage grant runs out uh, in october i believe this year and of course we don't know yet whether there will be a possibility to continue and and uh, that decision hasn't been made but if it does continue what what's on the top of your wish list what what's in your head in terms of oh i'd love to see this included i'd love to, i'd love to see it like i was saying picking up and getting a bit more into the sort of the the creativity of the network and the the fos the fostering of 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 growth and and possibly you know services for small members so one one area that we've talked about quite a lot with a few people is um having a uh, management information system that all the partners can use to um, to really benefit from uh, you know more method 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 methodical way of, of of sharing information and managing data so that that could be one thing um, I, I I I think that probably the focus moving forward um, for us is is very much about resilience is about the the, the kind of seeing seeing uh, our humanitarian work in a continuum of development of uh, localization so in terms of those sort of themes i think um data is going to be really important and attracting membership um to the network of, of actors from the south is going to be really 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 key i think for it to to really grow and to remain a relevant organization so yeah loads of loads of stuff i think covid's really you know taught us a lot about how much we need to rely more on on digital and data uh now and so i can see more and more actors um in that area sort of coming up with with, with skills and and bridging out and making links um some really specific things like biometrics in the sector you know um one one of our friends said if you know if we don't come up with good solutions for biometrics the private sector will and wouldn't it be better to have 
a humanitarian uh, biometrics provider, for example. So these kind of these kind of innovation tech frontier um, services that some of our some of our um, partners can can provide could be really interesting. So, so I agree. I, what I hear you saying is uh, we need to lower the threshold for small organizations to be successful, really create an enabling environment for them. We need more creativity. We need to think about the challenges that that this uh, pandemic and, and 2020 taught us. Um, picking up all that learning that is emerging there, I think we, there is a special role for the network in in, in ensuring that, that the sector as such evolves quickly. I think before we close off this part of the conversation, I, I, there's a point I'd like to make, because sometimes when we talk about these things, uh, I know some p- colleagues get uh, upset when we call them dinosaurs or elephants or or whatever, uh, you know. Or it, it sometimes felt like it's a very cheap background upon which uh, to profile these small organizations, and I get that point, and I can see how how it can be provocative to think in these terms. but. At least my take on it is that on one side, there are some real problems associated with the current modality in which we operate. And some of that is associated, I think, with large organizations not knowing what they're not, not knowing the boundaries of their own uh, value added. And I think if I have one aspiration for the H2H network, it is that it doesn't repeat that mistake. I think if we can be acutely aware of being one-trick ponies who actually don't change the world on this there's somebody using our services unless we influence others. Our success, in a sense, is, is through the agency of others. And if we if we forget that very fundamental lesson, then I don't think we can play a transformative role. But if, if we manage to get that piece right and foster a strong system link with, with the mainstream humanitarian organizations, then I think it is a piece in the puzzle that is today underutilized and that can add more value than it is today. But I don't think it's a silver bullet that solves all problems, but it'll, I think it'll edge us forward. And I think an increased investment into that community will deliver good return on investment. But it's not a zero-sum game with the mainstream organizations. I think that that's really what I'm trying to say. No, they, they, they remain actors with significant things to, to bring to the table um, and, and, and do things at scale. I mean, this is why we... We have such a commitment to multilaterals is is their ability to respond over multiple geographies um, with relevant assistance, right? And I still think that so remains. We've spoken right? about H two H and about the work you do as a civil servant is in the FCDO. What I'd like to pursue now is is a somewhat different track or different side of focus, and and I'd like to start by reading out your your Twitter profile. It says Congo optimist dyslexic, humanitarian, dog lover, LGBTQI plus advocate, European, Tamil speaker, disruptor, bipolar, tweets and retweets reflect my opinion. So that certainly shows a, a different side of you. I don't, I hope nobody ever called you a square. Not yet. <laughs> and so how come you put on your Twitter profile that you're bipolar? Um, because I think it's really important um, to talk about uh, the the disabilities that you live with, um, and bipolar disorder is uh, a really debilitating um, disorder. 
uh, has frighteningly high um, mortality rates, especially in young men. Um, and uh, it, is a, it is an illness that I think that many people um, uh, experience at one stage in their life or other. Um, it's much more common than we think. And um, I, 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 it's important um, for me to show the world, I think, that, that you can live a really creative, really productive, really colorful life uh, and be, uh, be me medicated and live, live in the community um, and, and live with this illness. Um, so I, I, I do it because I think I want other people to realize that they're not alone and realize that uh, it's not such, it doesn't have to be such a massive deal. And so I'm sure you've been quite open about this in your workplace as well, and, and that your colleagues obviously know this. Is, how, how does, is there any concrete things that that changes, that openness? What, how, how does that make your life different at your, at your workplace? That's a really good question. Um, I think one of the great things of working um, in the British civil service is that there is a really big um, openness and willingness to talk about um, any kind of um, disability or inclusion. Um, and a, a real attempt to make people know that, that that they are supported and cared about, and that's you know from a very individual team level um, up to very sort of corporate things. So you know the kind of assistance and help that are available for people who struggle with mental health illnesses um, um, are available and 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 can be accessed. I I, st I still think there is huge stigma. So my family. Um, were very protective of me when I first had a diagnosis um, and they encouraged me not to talk about um, having bipolar disorder um, and I found that actually wasn't helpful that made me kind of internalize a lot of the things that I was feeling and I found it very hard to cope with um, having awful mood swings um, and I think it's only when I started talking honestly to my um, my friends and, and and being a bit more open about it and i really do think that discussing um discussing mental illness uh, and being honest about it is um is the best thing it's no more abnormal to have uh, bipolar disorder than it is to to have diabetes or um epilepsy and the solutions for you know for, for diabetes and epilepsy is that there's a, a therapeutic medical treatment that manages that illness and just for me as well um, I've been so fortunate. I've lived since I was 18 on lithium, and um, that has enabled me to have a relatively straightforward life, I think, and to achieve a lot of stuff. So, so yeah, I mean, a lot of people are very critical about lithium therapy. They say it really diminishes the amount you can be creative, and it kind of just kind of dulls your senses and, and, and things. I would rather take having those dull senses um, than be dead, honestly, because the risks of, 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 um, of suicide are incredibly high. First, I, I want to say I just deeply admire your courage and, and your ability to, to take this out into the open. It can't be easy. It, it, it's, uh, it must be a very intimidating thing to bring into the public space, and I really admire your, your courage for doing it. Thank you for doing that. And secondly, I would say that if if uh, if you if this is the dull you and and this is the less creative you, 
I, I, you're not too bad off. I mean, uh, I think you do manage to bring a tremendous amount of creativity to the table and, and, and an energy that's just amazing. So, so I, I find that, um, I find that a very, uh, admirable and, and, and courageous thing to do. You also write that you're dyslexic. Yeah. Um, Yeah, dyslexia is in my in my family too. Um, both of my brothers um, were dyslexics. Um, uh, I kind of got assessed when I was about about eight or nine, I think. And and um, I think really in the eighties, when I was that age, the the system wasn't really set up. Nowadays in the UK, there's a lot more support for people with dyslexia, and you can access a lot more assistive technologies well those didn't exist in the 80s um but it was a i mean i was 10 11 year old and i couldn't read or write and i definitely couldn't do maths um so. <laughs> but here you have Fergus. you have a job where you basically write concept notes and and approve budgets yeah yeah it's something something worked out okay right <laughs> yeah and and how but how, how do you do you have tools how, how do you actually manage that Um, yeah, so the assistive technologies are um, are getting there. They're not perfect yet, but there are things like um, you know a voice to text. So the computer will enable me to dictate. So I, I don't write when I'm tired reading. I read quite slowly. Um, the computer reads texts for me. Um, it's more. I think um, it's. I, I still generally don't use voice to text because it's not. You know, the, the the software isn't the greatest yet. But it's, they're improving it all the time, and you know I'm sure that that technology will come on really quickly in the next five years or so. Um, I also am allowed to have extra time in my work, so um, if if there's a deadline, I, I'm allowed a bit of extra time to just to make sure that I carefully read. And I, you know, I still I make I make loads of errors when I'm writing emails, especially when my brain is going more quickly than my fingers. Um, But I do put a disclaimer on my email saying excuse excuse my spelling or please remember that this email was written with uh, with voice recognition software just to give people a bit of a heads up. But again, um, I can't criticize um, the British Civil Service. They've they've really um, made space for this and and really want to help people with dyslexia. How is it to deploy into a sudden onset though? I mean, being bipolar, I I, I must I have to be honest, I don't know much about it, but i wouldn't imagine that high stress situations are a particularly good mix with that yeah i mean the thing is i think that i've lived on a diet of of high stress for the last 20 years um doing responses and and living in conflict zones so i think i've i've as long as i'm on my on my meds i'm fine i'm fine i yeah my thresholds for stress and stimulus are really really high um i think actually last february when we were in geneva and i had um, i think i had covid 19 already um and the the sort of i don't know there was the stimulation levels of of being at the hnpw and meeting so many friends and colleagues it was a very very intense time and that was beginning to push me towards um towards having a you know quite a big up mood swing um so i think The, the older you get, the more insight you have, and the more you realize that there are times when you need to to step back. I'm usually 
yeah, I've been fine uh, doing rapid onsets. Um, and I think rapid onset is much, you know, my present job in, 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 in the foreign office, in foreign development Commonwealth office, rather than most of my work experience has been in, in conflict affected and, you know, protracted countries. So. Fergus, thank you for coming on True Humanitarian. Thank you for all of the work you do behind the scenes inside FCDO and for your creativity, the new ideas you managed to bring to the table and, and make grow and, and thrive. It's just uh, it's a working relationship I deeply treasure. And also thank you for sharing your personal story and having the courage to come out and be open and fighting the stigma around uh, mental illness uh, and and, 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 and thank you for trying to create a more inclusive humanitarian sector. It's my pleasure. Ask better questions, pick apart, educate, and knowing is safe, we're here to build and debate. We are, we are searching for more. Open up your mind beyond rich or poor. For the truth, you've been warned. Humanitarian. <laughs>